This is Christian Knutson and Sarah Hopeful with your local news, coming to you from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. Today, State Senator Melissa Agard, a Democrat from Madison, was unanimously elected by her caucus to serve as the Wisconsin Senate's minority leader, according to a press release issued from her office. Agard previously served as the Minority Caucus Vice Chair and will succeed former Minority Leader Janet Bewley, a senator from northern Wisconsin who did not seek re-election this fall. Agard represents the 16th Senate District, which includes large portions of Dane County. She was first elected to the state Senate in 2020 after serving in the Wisconsin Assembly for seven years. Following last week's election, Republicans hold 22 state Senate seats, compared to 11 held by Democrats. While Republicans hold a supermajority in the Senate, they did not get a two-thirds majority in the Assembly that would be needed to overturn a governor's veto. After years of downturn, Wisconsin's frack sand mining industry is seeing revived demand from oil and gas companies, WPR reports. SmartSand Inc., a Texas-based company that operates mines in western and southwestern Wisconsin, reported a two-fold increase in revenues in the past year. Frack sand mines, which produce sand used for oil and natural gas extraction, saw major declines during the pandemic due to decreased energy demands. These declines were compounded by energy companies finding frack sand sources in Texas, closer to sites of oil drilling. Since 2019, many Wisconsin mines have declared bankruptcy or have been completely shuttered and reclaimed. An estimated 15 million tons of sand production has come back online since late 2021, though experts do not expect production levels to return to peak levels reached between 2010 and 2015. The Associated Press reports that there were no serious injuries following an emergency plane landing on a golf course in Waukesha County. The plane, which was transporting dogs from Louisiana to shelters in Wisconsin, struck a grove of trees after a crash landing, spilling some 300 gallons of fuel. The three people and 56 dogs aboard the plane were reported to be okay. The DNR was called to the scene and an investigation of the crash is underway. Today, the City of Madison and community partners hosted a press conference honoring the victims of traffic collisions and calling attention to the need to improve safety of city streets. Over the past five years, 57 people have been killed in traffic collisions in Madison, and three cyclists have been killed this year alone. The city's Vision Zero initiative aims to prevent future injuries and fatalities by using data-driven strategies, including smart street design, to make Madison streets, bikeways, and sidewalks safer. Today's press conference anticipates the World's Day of Remembrance for Road Traffic Victims, an international event which takes place on Sunday, November 20th. A display to honor lost community members will be set up through November 21st. Madison's alternate side parking restrictions take effect today and run run through March 15, 2023. This rule is enforced between the hours of 1 a.m. and 7 a.m. Violations of alternate side parking are punishable by fines of $20, and vehicles may also be towed. Vehicles parked on a street within the snow emergency zone only need to follow the alternate side parking rule if and when there is a declared snow emergency. A map of the zone can be found at cityofmadison.com slash winter. The Sauk Creek Greenway requires restoration due to the impacts of urban runoff, but how restoration will be carried out is up for debate at today's Common Council meeting. WISC-TV reports that residents are bringing a petition to the Madison City Council opposing additional funding for the project until an environmental impact study is performed and community input is incorporated into restoration planning. 
The restoration project started in 2018 with an initial $1.7 million allocation. An additional $1.5 million has been earmarked to the next four years of work if the project continues. Residents worry the city will clear-cut some 5,000 trees. And now on to today's top stories. The Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources has issued its first new wolf management plan in about a quarter century. Rather than providing a single population goal, this proposal is is billed as taking a holistic approach, one that balances the protection of the wolf population with hunting and trapping. WORT producer Talia Van Sistine has the story. Over the past two decades, the Wisconsin wolf population has been managed with one central goal in mind, recovering the species. The last wolf management plan for the state was passed in 1999. That came at a time when the state's wolf population numbered only about 100 to 200. Now the wolf population is approaching 1,000, according to the latest count. And the Department of Natural Resources is proposing a new plan for managing wolves, one that focuses on long-term sustainability rather than hard numbers. This new plan would strip the state from a hard population goal, which has been in place for decades. Randy Johnson is a large carnivore specialist for the DNR. He says the new proposal recognizes the species, has recovered, and instead focuses on long-term sustainable management for the wolf population. Under the existing plan from 1999, the state sets a population goal of 350 wolves. Some wolf advocates say that hunters have used that population goal to their advantage, and the fight between animal rights advocates and hunters came to a head last year when a late-breaking court ruling allowing an earlier hunt resulted in 218 wolves killed, or about 15 percent of the wolf population, in less than three days. This new plan will instead create zones and take a regional approach to wolf management. The considerations for wolf management are, uh, for example, different in the northern forested areas of the state that are considered, you know, primary core wolf habitat versus the southern part of the state that is dominated by by humans and agriculture and roads. Johnson says this new approach will ensure the population stays healthy. It will also address and reduce conflicts, such as when wolves kill livestock, and maximize opportunities for regulated hunting and trapping. The process for creating this new plan was long, but Johnson says it's more inclusive of the numerous groups who are impacted by Wisconsin's wolf population. The proposal is the product of massive stakeholder feedback, including dozens of organizations, which included tribal representatives and government agency partners. The DNR also conducted an updated scientific survey of public opinions on the issue of wolf management in Wisconsin as a way to gather more feedback. Uh, We sent out 8,000 questionnaires across the state, a random sample. So this gives us the ability to, you know, make inferences to the, the, the population at large. The draft of the new wolf management plan is available on the DNR's wolf management webpage. The deadline to share your feedback on the plan is January 10th. For WORT News, I'm Talia Van Sistine. It's budget week for the city of Madison. Deliberations begin tonight and continue Wednesday and possibly into Thursday. Alders will jockey to have budget amendments passed, though at least one proposal out of the dozens that was initially considered will not be seen the light of day this year. WRT reporter Abigail Levins has more. It's harder and harder to get uh, an accessible taxi cab in Madison. That's Alder Eric Paulson, who represents Madison's far east side on the Madison Common Council. 
Paulson is the author of an amendment seeking to increase the fleet of accessible taxi cabs in the city, along with fellow alder Charles Miadzi, who represents Madison's north side. The capital budget proposal would spend $250,000 to finance accessible vehicles for private cab companies. That would be enough to pay for about four or five accessible vehicles, which can each cost up to $64,000. Alder Paulson says the proposal was driven by a general lack of accessible transportation in the city, and that providing taxi services with grants for accessible vehicles would help solve the problem. But the proposal won't come before Alders tonight or this week. It failed to move past one of Madison's most powerful committees, the Finance Committee, back in September during budget considerations then. Philip Gritzmaker is a planner with the Department of Transportation. He was at that September Finance Committee meeting. Gritzmaker says that this is likely not a rejection of the idea forever. There just wasn't enough information to move forward this fall. Yeah, I think I think more information was needed uh, to, to justify you know, numbers from the operator themselves, um, more information about how the vehicle would be used, just more information generally. Paulson thinks that providing taxi services with grants for accessible vehicles would solve the problem. Union Cab is the only on-demand taxi service in the area with accessible vehicles, according to a Department of Transportation planner who we'll get to later. Bill Carter is the business manager of Union Cab. He says it's becoming difficult for them to meet the demand. Even after we add whatever new vehicles we're able to, we're still way short of the demand that's out there. Union Cab has nine accessible vehicles. Carter thinks having money for more would be helpful, but they're also struggling to find drivers. But we found, I think from talking to people internally, that if we had more up-to-date vehicles, that we could probably attract more drivers to driving it. Carter says that while Uber can provide accessible services if requested, they are not considered an on-demand service. That's because Uber drivers can choose to reject a ride. Alders Paulson and Miadzi reached out to Ben Lyman, a transportation planner at Greater Madison MPO, for feedback on the amendment. Lyman says that it would be beneficial to grant money to these taxi services. I, I think that adding accessible vehicles to the overall fleet in the Madison area is critically important, that there are not enough accessible vehicles in taxi service to meet the demand. However, Lyman believes that the problem runs much deeper than the number of vehicles. Lyman says that different accessibility-focused agencies do not communicate effectively. If two people in the same area need a ride to the same place at the same time, they might go to two different places depending on their eligibility, which uses two cars. It builds in inefficiency and creates these sort of silos of what rides you are allowed to take. Lyman thinks the best solution is to increase coordination between different agencies. So ultimately, like, we need to be breaking down those barriers and enabling better coordination between those agencies and allowing for this, the sharing of rides across funding streets. But, but that's you know, it's, it's a huge barrier right now. Alder Paulson has not started work on a revised amendment yet, but plans to have a more specific plan regarding accessible taxis in the spring. Meanwhile, other amendments that were successful during previous budget negotiations will have their fate decided before the council tonight and tomorrow. Tonight's meeting is already in progress, and you can tune in to watch at Madison City Channel page. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Abigail Levins.
It's now 6.19 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. A new report from the Wisconsin Policy Forum finds a record number of ballot referendums passed in the November election. There were more than 250 referendum questions on ballots across the state last week and voters approved a large majority of them. WRT producer Talia Van Sistine spoke with the lead author of this report about these findings. A new report from the Wisconsin Policy Forum says voters approved a record number of referenda in last week's election. Joining us today is Ari Brown, the lead author of this report and a senior research associate at the Wisconsin Policy Forum. Ari, thank you for joining me today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. So, First off, this is a question that myself and some of my colleagues have had here at WORT. Is it referendums or referenda? You know, this is a great question. I think we uh, we tend to use referenda, but I've seen referendums as well. So jury's still out on this one. Okay, good to know. Well, on ballots across the state last week, there were more than 250 referendum questions. 104 of those referenda asked voters to allow a school district, town, city, village, or county to exceed state limits on local property taxes. And in unofficial vote tallies, as you write in this report, 78.8% of those referenda passed. Ari, how does this percentage compare to referendum? from previous years? Yeah, this is a great question. So um, unfortunately, we don't have a denominator for the uh, town, city, village, or county exceed levy limit referenda. Um, So it's hard to say how that specific number compares. But I can say that this is the, um, and and this was kind of the impetus for this piece, this is the most, um, the highest number of the city, town, village, and county exceed levy referenda that have passed in a single year since levy limits were put in place in 2005. Um, we have data from the League of Wisconsin Municipalities, um, and this is actually the most by quite a bit. So there were 25 that were passed this year, 18 in the fall, seven back in the spring. Um, there is another year that comes uh, even higher than 17. Um, so really a record number, both in terms of the amount and then also in terms of uh, the amount of um new levy, you know, property tax authorization. Um, there's up to $14.4 million extra that was authorized by these 25 uh, referenda that were passed between the spring and the fall. Um, so so quite a record number there. For school districts, um, we had, uh, you know, 76, or sorry, uh, 64 out of 81 passed in the fall, um, which, you know, is fairly in line with what we've kind of been seeing over the last couple of years. Um, but, you know, looking at it, at the trend over the, the last couple decades or so, um, in the last three um, either midterm or presidential election years, so 2022 and then 2020 and 2018, we have had both a very, very high number of total referenda on the ballot, as well as a very high amount uh, that are being passed. All three of those years had a, a approval of school district referenda that was above 80%, more than four out of every five um, so when you look at all of this um, data kind of coming together, what we can see is that this was really a standout year in terms of, um, you know, approval of referendums specifically to exceed state imposed levy limits. One of the final portions of this report, it was mentioned that there were fewer referenda last week in less prosperous parts of central and northern Wisconsin. What do you think this says about the future trend of local referenda? Yeah, so I think one of the things that we highlight here is, um, you know, 
property taxes and, and the way that property taxes change and just taxation in general, it's a very highly partisan issue. Um, you know, you are more likely to have places that are um, usually more democratic, but also just wealthier communities who can afford to um, increase their their own property taxes uh, and, and take that on. Um, they are more likely to do that than communities, like you mentioned, in, in um, central and northern Wisconsin um, that, that might not be as especially property wealthy um, as, as other communities throughout the state. Um, one of the things that you might start to see, you know, is because of these limits placed on local governments at the at the state level, um, essentially what we've been seeing over the last couple of years is that the choice of how much revenue a, a specific local government or school district should have um, is a lot of times being, you know, debated at the local level in, in the form of a referendum, right? So you might have, you know, a local school district say, we are not getting enough from the state, we're going to go to voters. And if the voters, you know, are generally in favor of, um, you know, or at least willing to raise their own property taxes, you might see that happen. Um, but then there are parts of the state where um, that might just be less likely to happen. Rather than if the changes came from the state level, you might start to see that from a more kind of equalized perspective, right, where you, you might see the state, um, you know, when it comes to school aid, there's a formula for how the state distributes school aid. Um, same with shared revenue. There's a formula for um, how shared revenue is, is um, given out to, to municipal and county governments. Um, so it's really going to, you know, if things stay the way that they are now, we don't have, um, you know, increases to state aid, state shared revenue. Um, we don't have more local revenue options like sales taxes. That's another thing that we call out in this report. Um, right now, the decision is uh, of, you know, how much revenue a specific government should have. It seems like is increasingly being kind of discussed in the form of referendums. And those are more likely to pass in certain places uh, and less likely to pass in other places. And I know the forum has previously noted that Wisconsin's multi-billion surplus seems, quote, like a golden opportunity to tackle mm -hmm. issues such as the financial challenges facing local governments, as we just discussed. How could lawmakers and the governor use these funds to decrease the disparity between wealthy and less prosperous parts of the state? Yeah, so, um, you know, we've, we've talked about how, um, you know, looking at the amount of fund balances the state has, both in the, the general fund and the rainy day fund, but primarily the general fund, we're looking at um, amounts that are, you know, upwards of, um, you know, $5 billion. Um, we are at a really, really healthy, the state is at a really healthy place um, in terms of a, a, a general fund balance, um, which is just kind of undesignated revenue that it could use. Um, that that revenue could very easily be um, I, I think the, the big conversation that's been happening here and and kind of the, the most obvious um, form in terms of getting that revenue to local governments would be um, increases to, to the shared revenue program, um, which is kind of just a direct um, deposit from state government coffers to local governments, town cities, villages, counties. Um, you might see for school districts, the uh, per pupil revenue limit increase. Um, which would then necessitate an increase uh, in, in state shared aid. Um, so those are kind of the main mechanisms um, by which the state could could uh, could dole out some of those reserves. Um, that said, there has not 
you know, we haven't seen a big willingness, um, especially from Republican lawmakers, to make that happen. We've really seen um, state coffers and specifically the general fund grow to, um, you know, some of its highest levels uh, in recent memory. Okay, I've been speaking with Wisconsin Policy Forum researcher Ari Brown about the organization's new report on referenda. Ari, thank you again for joining us today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Time is now 6.33 and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm Sarah Hopeful here with Christian Knudsen. Thanks for joining us. Every Tuesday, we check in with the editorial staff over at the Daily Cardinal, one of UW-Madison's student newspapers, to learn the latest news from campus. This week, Cardinal Call producer Hope Carnop is joined by two of the publication's editors to discuss their fall action project and a recent interview with UW-Madison Chancellor Jennifer Manukin. Hello and welcome to the Cardinal Call, your weekly dose of news coming out of the UW-Madison campus from the Daily Cardinal student newspaper. I'm producer Hope Carnup, joined today by Editor-in-Chief Sophia Vento and Managing Editor Jessica Sonkin to discuss the Cardinal's Fall Action Project and our interview with Chancellor Jennifer Manukin. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Hope. Thanks for having us. What is the purpose of doing these action projects and what do you hope readers gain from reading this coverage? So our action project is our semesterly themed issue and this is a time for people to use their creative exploration but also dive deeper into one specific issue or concept or theme that not only affects our campus but our city and state here in Wisconsin. And it gives writers the chance to kind of look more in depth and um, approach stories from angles that otherwise might not have been accessed in breaking news moments or times of quick coverage. In this case, we chose the drug issue because of so many discussions circulating around drugs and their financials in the state, their access in the state, and how they're affecting students on campus and their daily lives. We looked at some funky topics, like at our science desk, there is a story about Viking rage and psychedelics, which is really new and exciting to dive into. Then we have stories about the excessive use of painkillers and substances and supplements through our sports section, tying that into Wisconsin athletics, but also just sports in general. Um, Then you move on to the arts desks and we have little blurbs of stoner music that people should listen to. Just personal recommendations. And movies. Um, So yeah, we've also got a broad scope there and some of our beat articles are really, really funny. This topic was, you know, it's a hard topic in a lot of ways, but it did offer a lot of good stories for a lot of subjects or different desks to delve into and we could not be more happy with how our editors and writers just undertook this really big, big issue. Yeah, and as specified in our management note, we wanted to we wanted to touch on this topic in the most sensitive ways as possible because we know that so many people grapple with issues surrounding drugs 
in this day and age. And this is all just to put it out on the floor and tell people that this is what it's like. What were some of the stories that our news team looked into for the action project? So many. Like, I, we are so impressed yes. with, with the scope that our writers were able to explore. Obviously, drugs is a really big, broad term, and we were really uh, sort of honing in on keeping it broad because there's just so many stories that fall under that. We had uh, writers look at uh, Badger Recovery, which is a recovery program here at UW-Madison. We had writers looking at what Wisconsin is missing out on by um, keeping marijuana um, as illegal in the state and criminalized. We also had um, some writers look at like the historical binge drinking on campus and sort of broader context of drinking in Wisconsin. Other stories on clearing up the confusion about marijuana policy in Madison, but then also shifting gears and thinking about things as drugs that might not commonly be discussed as drugs, like options for birth control in the state of Wisconsin, given the current circumstances with Roe v. Wade, and taking a lot of other current events and applying them to how drugs impact daily lives. As Sophia mentioned before, we had a story dissecting Badger Recovery, which is an on-campus recovery program for students who have or have not been diagnosed. It's more just a peer group um, with some really interesting personal anecdotes thrown in there and just some other larger scope coverage that dives into the politics of drugs being in this state. Shifting gears a little bit, student media had their yearly interview with Chancellor Jennifer Manukin on Friday. How did she describe her first 99 days in office? She, and I quote, said she is in listening and learning mode. And I mean, from afar, that's definitely something you can tell. She has been visiting with anyone and everyone across the state, across this campus, just really trying to get a grasp on um, what this university is, what it means in this state. Uh, Again, I think what I would just say is I've been so uh, impressed by the uh, commitment of so many on this campus, including very much students and student leaders, to try to make this institution as strong as it can be. In her introduction, she listed off some exciting things she's gotten to do since assuming her role as chancellor. She said she waited in her first cranberry marsh, attended state fairs, met with legislators um, and other civic leaders in Madison, did a lot of different things since assuming her role in office. But at the same time, she's had to address some difficult issues across campus, um, and she's had to do so as the leader and face of this university. One topic that came up is free speech issues on campus, particularly in the wake of the Matt Walsh event and protests and chalkings targeting Jewish students. What did Manukin have to say about the university's obligations to respond to such incidents? So Manukin talked a lot about the First Amendment and what free speech means in the context of a public institution, which we are, we're the flagship UW campus here in Madison. And as the leader of this university, she explained how we have an obligation to the First Amendment and how hate speech, regardless of who it is about, often falls under the First Amendment. So she kind of dived into the intricacies there. You know, right now, we see, for example, there's, there's uh, legislators out there, both, both some here and across the country, who would like to ban the teaching of some areas at our university um, because they think that that speech and that teaching is dangerous. 
at the same time, there's other people who would like to ban some speakers from being able to participate on our campus because they think that speech is dangerous. They're making sort of parallel arguments about very, very different um, substance areas. And it's hard to come up with a standard that would let you do one and not the other. It's very hard to do. So I uh, recognize that there's a tension between a sense of inclusion and robust free speech. And she really underscored that ultimately her goal is that through the culture and through the structural shifts in the university, we're able to have a campus that has this implicit sense of belonging and inclusivity, that when things like this happen, there is not as much an impact on students because there already is that established framework. Obviously, that's a very, very, very big task to undertake, just given our historical context with this university, as well as its treatment of, un, um, of marginalized communities and underrepresented communities. But that seems to be her long-term goal. Obviously, it's just her first few 100, you know, 100 days in office or so. So seeing how she will be taking steps to creating that actual, you know, more structural shift in belonging will be something to keep a, an eye on as she continues through her role. You also pose questions about UW-Madison's decline in research rankings. What is the trend there and how did Manukin respond to that? Over the last couple of years, we have declined in our research expenditures, meaning our amount of money spent on research which has reflected in our rankings. We've moved from being in the top five every year from 1972 to 2015 to declining to sixth place um, years following that, and then now we are currently in eighth place. And Manukin was honest in that like, seeing these rankings is a concern. I think uh, research is one of the pillars that is uh, just absolutely central to who we are as a university. And that includes actually lots of student opportunities to engage in research, even while undergrad, grads obviously also graduate students. Um, and so I'm having a series of conversations with my administrative leaders and deans about uh, how we can reverse that trend um, and remain a research powerhouse. She also mentioned that expenditures and you know the amount of money the university is spending is not always perhaps a great indicator of that um, what the quality of research coming out of the university is and the impact it's having. And just another clarifying point she touched on, the University of Wisconsin is still making money. We still have the money for these research expenditures. However, other institutions are surpassing UW-Madison, and that's why the ranking in that respect mm-hmm. is falling. Is there anything else you'd like to highlight about the Cardinals' recent coverage and what we've been up to over here? So we're very excited to share our election coverage, this action project, and the results of our meeting with the Chancellor with all of you, because yet again, we aim to serve the campus community and surrounding communities and make sure we are delivering the best possible information we can. Sophia and Jess, thank you so much for your leadership this past week and for coming on the show. Thank you, Hope. Thank you, Hope. (laughs) That's all for our Cardinal Call this week. We'll catch you back here soon. Check out more news and stories at dailycardinal.com. Our action project, The Drug Issue, can be found in print at locations around campus or under the Action Projects tab on our website. This has been The Cardinal Call, created by student journalists at UW-Madison.
today on Wildlife Weekly, be careful feeding those critters outside. Feature contributor Jackie Sandberg breaks down how feeding our fluffy and feathered friends can have negative consequences, like a squirrel trapped in a soda can. Welcome to Wildlife Weekly. My name is Jackie Sandberg, and I'm the Wildlife Program Manager for the Dane County Humane Society here in Madison, Wisconsin. Each week, we choose a topic related to wildlife rehabilitation or the environment, and today we'll be talking about what to do, but also mostly what not to do when you are feeding animals. And by animals, I mean wild animals, because there's a lot of wild animals out there, and every one of them has very different needs. Sometimes, although we know that the public's best intention is to try to help an animal, feeding it is not always the best thing to do. There are only certain situations where feeding wildlife might be appropriate, so I thought it would be fun to kind of go through some of those tips and things that you might want to consider before you're actually going to get up close and personal with our furry friends or feathery friends. So the first thing is that human food is not healthy for wild animals at all. They don't need food from us to survive. And that is probably one of the biggest takeaways that I've gotten by being in this field as a wildlife rehabilitator. And you can definitely check out information more specifically about this on a lot of our tip resource websites. In particular, the USDA, U.S. Department of Agriculture, has some great don't feed wildlife tips, but they have specialized diets. So animals can actually become what we'd say is malnourished, or they can die if you feed them the wrong foods. Also, a lot of our human food has sugars in it, and sometimes sugars in wildlife, not exactly what they need. Um, a lot of animals process sugars differently. And what about how we manufacture our foods? There's a lot of different types of you know, triglycerides and complex fatty acids and things that are kind of manufactured for people. That's probably not so great for certain animals that can't actually appropriately digest them. Also, we get a lot of animals in wildlife rehabilitation that get stuck in human food. So maybe you have that squirrel that really enjoys licking the inside of a soda can. Yes, a couple years ago, we did get the squirrel stuck inside of a Coca-Cola can, and he was so interested in the sweet, sticky stuff that had been dried on the inside a little bit that he stuffed his entire head in the Coca-Cola can, and that was a ridiculously difficult animal to get a piece of uh, you know aluminum off of without injuring it. So uh, just know that they don't really know wrappers, foil, tin. Sometimes they see a shiny item and also eat it. So if you are throwing away your garbage or trying to feed them some human food and they take some, uh, there's a chance that they could actually eat it. So um, uh, think of a sandhill crane once that ate a little grommet from a tent, probably uh, made of zinc or other materials. You know, that's not food, but it's something that kind of looks like something fun to eat or food. So, you know, people's food is wrapped in a lot of plastics and in, you know, metal and other things that just really aren't good for wildlife to come into contact with. Um, feeding wildlife can actually cause more public health concerns in terms of disease outbreak. So just remember that if you are going to leave the feeding station out for wildlife, like a bowl of seed or a bowl of cat food, if you're trying to feed the feral cats, you might get raccoons and possums and things that are going to congregate together. And there's a lot of disease spread between domestic animals, wildlife, and then people, especially if they're all coming into contact and then your dogs or cats are coming inside the house at night, for example. Uh, that, uh, you know, different parasites, usually fecal to oral transmission, meaning that a raccoon might, you know, defecate nearby a food source and then an animal like a dog or cat picks it up and then brings it in the house and then somehow you've got um, a disease outbreak on your hands. 
we also have animals that become too used to people. So, you know, encouraging them with food is not necessarily a good thing because they might think that you are a source of food. They can also lose that fear then if they think, oh, humans are nice. And then that becomes a problem later when someone calls, you know, animal control on nuisance animals or something. Or they can become too aggressive if you are not giving them what they want. So that can happen. And sometimes they're very destructive. Um, we have issues with other animals getting too close to us. So then they're now more at risk to being hit by cars or, um, you know, birds, you know, bird and aircraft collisions. If there's a lot of food or seed, you know, near an airport area or something. Anytime that food is like if you were to litter outside of your car, um, like a banana peel or something, you know, or an apple core, you know, we see that an animals will feed off of that, especially next to the roads. And then if they get hit by a car, you know, that was because they're going for this yummy food source. Um, but also we see a lot of folks that want to feed the ducks and geese. And I know that we've talked about this in past segments, but we really don't want to have them congregating to eat things like bread, which is basically like sugar for them. Also, if they are coming to a place where there's lots and lots of food being given out to them and then they congregate and they stay, you know, sometimes they have a lot of uh, refuse that can build up. So according to USDA, waterfowl species, some of them drop an entire pound of feces every day. And if you imagine hundreds of them in one location, that's a lot that can really pollute a lot of the, your nearby waterways. Um, so the things that we talk about what you don't want to do, you know, don't feed wild animals any human kind of food. Also, know your species. There are some foods that you never want to give to animals because it could hurt them or harm them. It's the same as if you were to talk about your dogs or cats. You know, you don't feed your dogs onions or raisins, for example. We don't want to do the, the people food, but also we don't want to attempt to touch the animals or have them become tame to us to the point where they might interact with us or climb on us. We don't want that trash coming from our food to uh, be left outside. Or if they were to take a raccoon comes up to you at a campsite and takes away your whole bag of Cheetos, it might think it's really funny, but then that bag is out there and, you know, an animal then gets stuck in it or tangled in it or they ingest it. And that's really unfortunate. So don't hand feed the animals. Uh, make yourself look really big and scary. Uh, hope that they are scared away. Properly, safely feeding wild animals is going with that specific feeder, but away from your house and, you know, don't have your pets have access to it. Maybe it's an elevated food dish with lots of healthy vegetables and seeds and things that maybe some of our animals might eat, but also cleaning your feeders really regularly. Because you've got different visitors coming, it's important to keep those clean from disease and bacteria. So if you can at least once a week clean out your feeders with a 10% bleach solution, we've got information about that on our website at www.giveshelter.org. That's going to at least you know, help to reduce some of that transmission risk. So if you can keep your feeders clean, that's going to be better for the animals. And really, we only feed them in general during the times where they don't have their natural food source readily available. So in the warm summer months, for example, food is so plentiful around in this area. We're more feeding a lot of our wild animals in the wintertime when there's an adverse weather event. Note if there's overcrowding. Maybe you want to put a nest cam or some kind of trail camera up uh, just to kind of see who's coming by the feeders. If you notice that a lot of different species are co-mingling, that might be time to move the feeder or to take it down for a couple of weeks and then maybe bring it back again another couple of weeks um, just so that they aren't always habitually coming to the same place over and over again and then therefore, again, increasing the chance of disease spread. And also, if you ever have an animal that's just not acting normally, maybe they're strange, maybe aggressive or something, it's best to probably reach out to a wildlife rehabilitator to see if there's a sickness, an injury, something that's causing problems at the feeder that might be abnormal for that species, for the time of day, for that time of year, anything like that. 
So you definitely don't want to feed foods that are high in sugar, um, also things that might be dangerous to animals, anything that would be considered like a poisonous food source to either wild animals or to like domestic dogs and cats. So don't put that kind of food out into the environment in general. And then, you know, safely feed them by having a designated feeding spot or multiple of them, but at a distance from your own home. So make sure you keep those clean and don't encourage the wildlife to come up to you or to your hand or to encourage them to become tame to people. So those are kind of your biggest do's and don'ts. Definitely let them have access to natural foods and plant as many natives as you can for those seed eaters and give them things like worms, like mealworms and nightcrawlers and all that other stuff that you can have out for them that would be uh, more appropriate. More natural food sources is better. Fruit is also another good one. So hopefully that has been informative. Check out more information on the USDA website. And then also you can look on any of the other wildlife rehabilitation sites like our National Wildlife Rehabilitators Association has some great information too about how to help wildlife in those ways. And we hope we enjoyed this segment here on WORT. This has been Wildlife Weekly. It's now 6.53 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. How do you find a black hole that you can't see directly? Well, on today's edition of Radio Astronomy, crew member Andrew Nine peers into the abyss of a swarm of black holes hiding in the center of a globular cluster. Good evening, and welcome to Radio Astronomy. My name is Andrew Nine, and tonight I'd like to talk about the coolest three-word phrase I've seen in a long time. Black Hole Swarm. First things first, a brief review on black holes. For those of you who tuned into last week's radio astronomy, you may recall that Melissa Morris described how black holes form from the depths of the most massive stars. These massive stars, more massive than about eight times the mass of our sun, end their lives in immensely powerful supernovae and can leave behind black holes. These black holes typically have masses of about three times the mass of our sun, ranging up to perhaps a few tens of times. These are known as stellar-mass black holes. On the other extreme, there are the supermassive black holes that lie in the centers of most galaxies. Some, like Sagittarius A star at the center of our own Milky Way, have a mass of a few million times the mass of our Sun, while the very biggest supermassive black holes, like the recently imaged black hole at the center of the galaxy M87, have masses several billion times that of our Sun. These absolute monsters are thought to form through the mergers of smaller black holes over billions of years. We have these two extremes for possible masses of black holes, so it stands to reason that there must exist black holes with masses somewhere in between, right? Astronomers have asked this question for decades now. These in-between black holes are referred to as intermediate mass black holes, and they have proven to be incredibly elusive. We have plenty of observational evidence for the existence of stellar mass and supermassive black holes, yet the intermediate mass black holes remain stubbornly hard to find. These black holes are thought to be the missing link between stellar mass and supermassive black holes, so they are highly sought after. One possibility for finding these intermediate mass black holes is in the center of a globular cluster. Globular clusters are groups of stars bound together by gravity into a roughly spherical shape, and that orbit galaxies like our own. These globular clusters are ideal areas to search for a few reasons. First and foremost, they are massive. A typical globular cluster can contain hundreds of thousands of stars, 
and the largest can contain several million stars. The more stars there are to begin with, the more chances there are for stellar mass black holes to form. Secondly, they are dense. The cores of globular clusters are very tightly packed, with estimates of stellar density ranging from about 5 to 30 stars per cubic light year. To put that in perspective, in our own solar neighborhood, the typical stellar density is more like one star in 30 cubic light years. If there are stellar mass black holes in a region so densely packed, it would be much easier for one black hole to find and interact with another, and perhaps even merge to form an intermediate mass black hole. Lastly, they are old. The oldest globular clusters are more than 13 billion years old, nearly the age of the universe itself. This would give plenty of time for the stellar mass black holes to interact with each other and merge to form intermediate mass black holes. All in all, it would seem that globular clusters are ideal sites for the formation of intermediate mass black holes. Astronomers Eduardo Vitral and Gary Mamon of the Paris Institute of Astrophysics thought the same thing. The two astronomers recently used the Hubble Space Telescope to study the center of globular cluster NGC 6397 in the hopes of finding evidence for these elusive black holes. That begs the question, how do you even find a black hole that, by its very nature, is impossible to see directly? Over the years, astronomers have found some clever ways of studying how black holes affect their surroundings, and in that way they can observe black holes indirectly. One popular way of observing black holes is by tracking the proper motions of stars close to the black hole, or how those stars move across the sky. This method has been used to track the stars orbiting the supermassive black hole at the center of our own galaxy over the past 20 or so years, and it is how we know that it has a mass of about 4 million times that of our Sun. In fact, it was this same work that won astronomers Andrea Ghez and Reinhard Gensel the Nobel Prize in Physics last year. This is how Vitrola Mamon studied the center of NGC 6397. However, they did not find an intermediate mass black hole. To their great surprise, the proper motions of the stars they studied were more indicative of several smaller compact objects distributed within the centermost region of the cluster, with a combined mass of about 1 to 2,000 solar masses. Based on our understanding of stellar evolution, they concluded that about half of this mass is composed of stellar mass black holes, all orbiting each other in a swarm. This discovery, announced in a paper recently published in the journal Astronomy Astrophysics, is exciting in its own right. This swarm of stellar mass black holes and others like it are great targets for future studies by gravitational wave observatories. They would be able to detect and study the gravitational waves from mergers of black holes within these swarms and give us insight as to how larger black holes form. Studying this swarm will also inform us as to how globular clusters evolve over time, as it can show us how more massive objects sink to the centers of clusters by interacting with other objects. In the meantime, however, the search for intermediate mass black holes continues. Thank you for tuning in to Radio Astronomy tonight. My name is Andrew Nine, and have a stellar week. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WRT's Live Local News at 6. I'm your host, Christian Knutson. Stay up to date with the WRT Local News Podcast. Subscribe wherever you find your audio. And I'm your host, Sarah Hopeful. Up next is Spanish Language News with Enrico Patio. Good night.